to welcome those who are with us here in the building today, as well as those who are gathered today with us online. Glad that you're here together to worship the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our verse, our memory verse for this month is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. We'll go ahead and say it together this morning. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is is stronger than men, 1 Corinthians 1, 25. I might ask us this morning, have you ever been in a place where you have felt completely out of place? Ever. I wonder, ever walk into a restroom that's not your gender by accident? <laughs> or anything else along those lines, and all of a sudden, you break open the door and you realize, I don't belong here. <laughs> A quick glance around our culture today may bring into balance for us the reality that as believers in Jesus Christ, it appears that here in our temporary homes, we are more and more out of place. America has been called the melting pot. And this label is a part of our heritage, part of how our country Began and it's continued through generations of Americans as one of the hallmarks of American society. Commerce and industry, together with the promise of abundant opportunity, have brought men and women from all over the world to the soil of our country. And we find ourselves surrounded by more and more diversity. Differing languages, customs, religious traditions, and a conglomerate of expectations. Food, entertainment, athletics, they still continue to dominate discretionary spending and income. Political figures on both sides are demanding and successfully gaining a greater expression of commitment and loyalty from their followers. Pluralism, religious blending, and an acceptance of multiple and competing faith systems is now commonplace. The idea of one true way to a right relationship with God is less and less received and or accepted as a culturally valid perspective. And we should keep these realities in mind as we consider that which enveloped Paul as he was writing this, his first letter to the people of God in Corinth. The situation was not much dissimilar for Paul. Paul had originally visited the city of Corinth around 50 AD. It was his second missionary journey. He stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half, shepherding and providing ministry to the church. Ancient Corinth had been established as a Greek colony, but in 146 BC it was destroyed by Rome. Over a hundred years later, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar, the emperor of Rome, re-established the city of Corinth as a Roman colony. And now, roughly 100 years later, here is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
visiting the city. And three to four years after he visited, he would write his first letter to the people of God in Corinth. Now here is a map. And much like America, the city of Corinth could have been described as a wealthy melting pot. Geographically speaking, the city was situated on the eastern side of what is known as the Corinthian Isthmus. This is a track of land that serves like a bridge between two major land masses. So both wealth and diversity were a consequence of, of the Corinthians' favorable geographical position. There were two harbors. One that went directly to Asia and another that provided direct access to Italy. And this made trade and commerce within the city very, very competitive. At the time of Paul's visit and his writings, scholars have determined that somewhere between 80,000 and 100,000 inhabitants lived within the city limits. In Corinth, there was a diversity of language. There was a diversity of culture. And there was a diversity of religion. Religious pluralism defined the beliefs of many of the city's inhabitants. Religious pluralism plus an utter and unquestionable devotion to the emperor of Rome. Christianity and its perceived exclusivity identified Jesus alone as the only way to a right relationship with God. This new concept was truly out of place amongst the pluralistic thinking of the Corinthian people. The followers of the way, also known to us as Christians, it was still a fledgling movement that many within the city of Corinth even had deemed as atheistic. Could you imagine that? Early Christians viewed as atheists. It wasn't just the religious pluralists that the people of God were offending with their message, but the followers of Jesus were also no friends to the Jews who were living in Corinth. During the period of Paul's writing, scholars have identified the existence of at least one synagogue, but there may have been many others. Christians were very different from Jews. Not only did Christians not worship in pagan temples built to honor Roman gods, but they also did not need to worship in the synagogues of the Jews. Physical circumcision was not important. To Christians, the Sabbath as practiced by the Jews and the following of ritual purity laws and other Jewish customs were not required of those who had converted to Christianity. In fact, the followers of the way took the traditional Jewish definitions of temple, priest, sacrifice and flipped them on their heads. Defining those words based on Jesus's interpretations of them. And those interpretations, church, were vastly different than the popularly accepted and applied definitions of those words in the culture. The temple 
was now in the heart of every true believer. Circumcision was now an inward truth rather than an outward sign. Everyone who came to faith in Jesus Christ was now a priest. And sacrifice, friends, was not religious ritual practiced at an altar, but rather it was a daily delight of laying down one's life for their neighbor. Yet, to the general population, the most hopeful and threatening message that early Christians were proclaiming and living by was this. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. For the Christian, Caesar Augustus was not Lord and Savior. Rather, it was Jesus, the Messiah. And to the Christian in Corinth, devotion to Jesus took precedent over devotion to Caesar. And this, friends, was very dangerous. This left Christians in the city of Corinth feeling very out of place, highly scrutinized, and even in some cases, recipients of persecution within their society. Friends, this is the soil into which Paul is sowing. The people of God in Corinth are learning and growing and figuring out what it means to live as salt and light in the community that God has planted them in. And so Paul sets out to answer this gigantic question that we're confronting throughout this book. How do we do this? How do we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? Paul begins to unravel this question in this letter by first answering the pressing question, of together with our Messiah, what common realities are shared by disciples of Jesus? In order to live as disciples of Jesus, we need to know what realities define and describe what a disciple of Jesus actually is. And so as we turn to our text today, Paul begins his letter by fencing the church inside of the person of Jesus and then sharing five common realities along with Christ that all believers share. If you want to take your Bibles with me and turn to 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 1 today, beginning the letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the power of your word. And for the way that your spirit works through your word. And we gather together in this time each week, Lord, coming to you as children seeking a morsel from which we might be nourished. We need your word today more than ever, Jesus. The world and the culture that we live in threatens to tear us apart, divide us, to separate us, to conquer us. There's an enemy that lurks 
Your word describes him as one who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And so we come to your word and we find it as a buffet and a hope to stand against the attacks of the evil one and to confront the questions of the culture and the world that we live in today with the truth that we find in the pages of the scriptures. Father, we know that you intend to use this time to help us to grow in our love for you and our love for each other. And so we pray that your spirit would go forth now and accomplish the fruit that he desires in each and every one of our lives as we study your word together. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. First Corinthians chapter one, verses one to nine. Paul. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God. That is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul begins his letter by affirming the design of his calling. It is indeed by God's sovereign will that Paul provides his ministry to the church as an apostle. The very word apostle means one who has been sent forth with orders. And so Paul's orders from God were to participate in the establishment of his church. The fact that he united himself here with Sosthenes may be surprising to us since Sosthenes was most likely the chief ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. Now we are unsure completely if this is the same Sosthenes that's mentioned in Acts chapter 18, but it could very well be. And if it is, it's further evidence to the transformative power of the gospel. The same gospel used of God to convert Paul on the road to Damascus might also have converted the man who was at the time the very ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. And we do not know. Now we see dimly. One day we'll know in full. Paul's intention in his greeting is to pull the church together under the person of Jesus. And he does so rather intentionally, does he not? The first three verses alone, Paul mentions God's name three times. And he mentions the name of Jesus Christ four times using the specific term Lord in relationship to Jesus twice. 
again, friends, there's great purpose and significance behind this because the message that Jesus is Lord is a very different message from the predominant understanding of who was Lord in the Corinthian culture. For the Corinthians, Lord was the emperor of Rome. And that was unquestionable. From the very beginning, Paul wants this reality to be unmistakable. Repetition is the key to understanding. And so he uses the term Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, over and over and over again. As intentional as Paul is in mentioning the Father and the Son in the opening verses of his letter, he's also intentional in drawing out the corporate and the shared nature of our faith. How we as the church relate to God through Jesus is important and it goes a long way in answering questions and solving divisions and issues that abounded in both the Corinthian church and are still prevalent and present in many churches today. Take a look at how in just these first three verses, Paul clues us into the broader themes of righteous community within this letter. Now, if you like to underline in your Bible, you can go there. But if you don't like to underline in your Bible, I included the first three verses in your note guides. You start with the word R right before Sosthenes name. And if you take a look at the slide on the screen, you'll see in just the first three verses, all of the words in blue that are shadowed are related to our shared and corporate community, the church. In just three verses here, friends, 10 to 11 hints at the reality of us. How we relate to God, how we relate to one another within the church. And how we relate to those who are outside of the church are important. Starting in verse 2, Paul is writing to the called out assembly that God has planted in Corinth. Those who have been set apart by God in Christ. And again, he's highlighting the reality that though the church was planted in the city of Corinth, they were to be different than those around them sanctified, set apart from the culture they were planted in. Continuing in verse 2, this community was not by itself. We are a community of saints, together with all of the other saints in every place who also call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what exactly is a saint? No, we're not talking about the football team in New Orleans. There's so much more. The word saint actually means one who is holy. Now, you and I might say, that's not me. That's not me. But the reality is this, church. If we claim the name of Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then it's Jesus who declares us holy before God. Church, we are the saints. We are holy and set apart, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did. And this is how God views us and all of the other saints throughout the world who call upon Jesus' name. 
And this is significant because it continues to, continues to usher in the dawn of this new reality that was alluded to in the Old Testament. No longer was the gaze of God's salvific purposes set primarily on the people of Israel. But now so, the time had come for God's plan of salvation for humanity to be cracked wide open, wholly availed to all peoples of all nations. The Gentiles, friends, us, now knitted into the promises of God, realized in the person and work of Jesus, we too can now be counted among the saints. You're a saint. And it's hard for us to think of ourselves in that light, I understand. But because of Jesus, that's who we are. Haggai chapter 2 verse 7 looks forward to this time. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. Again, in Malachi, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So here is Paul in the city of Corinth, very literally among the nations. And here are we in America today, in the melting pot of the world, very literally among the nations. As Paul writes, he understands that the people of God in Corinth are part of this new reality, ushered in by God in the person of Jesus as the Holy Spirit draws many nations together under new and common shared realities. As Paul is writing, he does so with a knowledge of the fact that though we are one in Christ, in the church that he is writing to and in our church today, there are fractures, there are factions, there are fissures that have opened up among the people. What he's doing, friends, is he's redirecting the brokenness Back on the one who holds all things together. So he's drawing us together towards the realities that we hold in common as disciples of Jesus. In other words, before we look at whether or not we should eat meat sacrificed to idols, let's start with Christ and our shared purpose. Before we get to the divisions in the church, let's take hold of the rock that is true and sure. Before we begin to unpack the lawsuits and sexual immorality and how we use our spiritual gifts and the other points of difficulty that are in this letter, let us first remember and cling fast to Jesus. Paul's opening delivers to the church a common grace and peace that are given from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, in verses 4 to 9, with that foundation laid, he moves us towards five realities that are shared by all disciples of Jesus, still even today. Look at verse 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you, 
because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Friends, in giving thanks for the people of God, as Paul often does in his letters, he's demonstrating the common gift that has been given to all disciples in Christ Jesus, and that is the gift of grace. Along with love, grace will become a dominant theme throughout all of Paul's letters. A common understanding or definition of grace is being given something that we have not earned and do not deserve. And for certain friends, as you sit here today, if you are in Christ, you have received grace. The Bible tells us, by grace we have been saved. And great grace was one of the hallmarks that sustained the early church in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 20, Paul called the gospel the good news of God's grace. And later, in his second letter to the people of God in Corinth, Paul will call the church to excel in demonstrating grace. The grace of God is also described as being sufficient for all believers in overcoming any circumstance or situation that we might find ourselves in. Friends, disciples of Jesus share a common gift, and it is the gift of God's grace. When there are divisions that threaten to rend us, we press grace to the forefront and walk together in love and humility. That's what we're called to do. Yet it is not just a gift that we have in common, but we also have in common the same source of enrichment, which is closely related to God's gift of grace. Look at verses 5 to 7a. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. The gift of grace given to the church was full of other wonderful gifts that were to be used in love for the building up of the body. These gifts were the common enrichment that Paul is thankful for. And, ironically, they're the common enrichment that he's thankful for, but they are also the same thing that later Paul will have to correct and give instruction on because they're being abused. Paul's concerned with the proper use of the gifts that God has given to the church. The gifts that were given were meant to build up and enrich the people of God, yet they were often misused and abused among the people. Paul is thankful for the gifts because they were evidence of growth, evidence that Christ was confirmed and received amongst the people of God in Corinth. Friends, the exercise of the spiritual gift is also evidence that the grace of God is breathing and active amongst his people. As God's grace was extravagantly lavished amongst the people, Paul confirms that the gifts were given in abundance. Not one of them was lacking. Friends, as disciples in Jesus, our common source for enrichment and building one another up are the exercise of the gifts that he has given his church. 
Therefore, we encourage and use and exercise our spiritual gifts among one another. When we're using our gifts in our faith communities, we are practicing this unity and encouragement. Building one another up, sharing this common source of enrichment among one another. This is largely due to the reality that we do not exercise our gifts by our own strengths or efforts. But rather, exercising our gifts is evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in and through us. Have you ever been so encouraged by somebody's gifts in the church? Maybe you've had a really bad week, a terrible week, and things have gone wrong, and you get that phone call from that encourager, and it just lifts your spirits. It's a source of encouragement. You show up here on Sunday morning and maybe the world around you is falling apart and you come into the sanctuary and on stage there's gifted musicians that are drawing us into the throne room of grace. Giving us cause for joy and corporate worship. People sharing and using their giftedness to encourage and build up the body of Christ. Teachers. Teaching. We see Jesus at work among his people as we share together in the gifts that he has given. And Paul says that we are to be doing this as we wait eagerly for what he identifies as our common expectation. Take a look at the end of verse 7. This enrichment is going on as you wait, as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Disciples of Jesus share in this common hope that Jesus will one day return for his church. Amen? That's a common hope. And we hold on to that. Jesus is coming back. And that gives us great reason to be hopeful. It gives us great reason to hold on to joy when things seem difficult and out of place. One day Christ will return and he'll call his church home. Those who pass before that day are already found in his presence if they're in Christ. What beautiful and hopeful truths. As Paul sets forth endeavoring to correct and answer many of the issues that faced the Corinthian church, he was doing the same thing that many pastors in our communities and our towns and cities and states today still have to do as they shepherd the people of God. And the reality is, friends, the storms of life surround us. It's not easy here. I've said it before, I say it again. This is a battleground. It's not a playing field. Life rages on. Waves rise and fall, sometimes feeling as if we're being crushed. Peace can be disrupted. Grace and mercy can feel as if they're buried under the weight of adversity. Fear and anxiety threaten to corrupt and divide. Sin invades and pervades. And what Paul is doing here is the same thing that many ministers and pastors throughout the world do. Keep our eyes on Jesus. He is the great and common hope for us all. And friends, we cannot do this on our own efforts. If we try, we'll fail. We need Jesus' help. We need the Spirit working within us so that we're able to keep our eyes fixed 
on the Messiah. Apart from Jesus, friends, we can do nothing. Try as we might, we flail, we stumble, we run out of energy. And what often follows when we fail? Guilt. Shame. Friends, those conditions no longer have to define who we are. There's a common condition that all disciples of Jesus share, and it's in verse 8. We cannot sustain ourselves. But take a look at what Paul says in verse 8. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, as disciples of Jesus, we share a common condition as being guiltless before the Father. This is why we can be identified as saints. As holy, as set apart, because we are guiltless in Christ before the Father. Being blameless or guiltless does not mean that we no longer sin. What it means is that the penalty of our sins is no longer held Against us. Those who are in Christ have an advocate, a great mediator between God and man. One who declares us as guiltless before the Father. The shed blood of Christ has covered our sin. His victorious redemption guarantees us that the wages of our sin, death, has been paid in full, period. And when we sin today... Whether it's backbiting or slander or gossip. These are the things that were threatening the Corinthian church. They threaten our churches still today. Misrepresenting something or someone else. Assuming the worst in people. Tearing one another down. Lying, cheating, manipulating. Whatever it might be. Our advocate, Jesus, defends us as innocent before the Father. Jesus declares us righteous. And it is not a righteousness that we have earned or are in the process of earning. It is a declaration of righteousness that is given free from stipulation or demand. We still go before the Father, friends. We still confess. We still repent and ask forgiveness. But we can do so without fear of eternal consequence. Those who are in Christ are forgiven who the Son sets free, is free indeed. Some looked at Paul when he was declaring these truths. There were people in the church, and there may still be people in the church today, that looked at Paul when he was saying these things, and they simply could not believe it. Have you ever heard a story that's too good to be true? Well, probably is. My grandfather used to say it. And there was a question that it actually provoked, even in Romans chapter 8, where some surmised that if this is true, if this is the reality, Paul, I mean, if we're really forgiven once and for all, and the blood of Christ has covered us, and we're declared righteous and holy, then why not just go on sinning so that God's grace could abound? Paul says, no, 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 no. Not how it works. And namely, friends, because that mentality, that attitude, that mindset would violate the final common reality. 
that Paul identifies in this opening of his letter. Look down at verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, as disciples of Jesus, we share a common fellowship. The word that Paul uses here for fellowship connotes a common participation or partnership. And we want to pause here because we want to make sure that we understand that this does not take away from our personal union and personal intimacy with Jesus. Those are precious and real truths. We express those realities of that personal intimacy and union in community. As one scholar remarked in his commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians, he said, quote, Christian existence can be defined according to what has happened or what will happen to the believer, singular. But the most comprehensive definition focuses on the intimate relationship between believers, plural, and Christ, end quote. We are called in to community with one another. Therefore, for the Christian, it is not appropriate to say, I love Jesus, but I really don't like the church. They go together. Christ is the head. The church is his bride. There's a connection, a connectivity They're not able to be separated. You cannot love Jesus and not love the church. And as a people of God, we share together in this community and fellowship with Jesus that not only exists now, but is going to extend throughout eternity. Did you ever get around a curmudgeon? You know what a curmudgeon is? Think of the Grinch. Just don't like people. Just want to be left alone. Leave me alone. I got bad news. Heaven's going to be full. It's going to be crowded. And it's going to be so good. So good. Friends, as disciples of Jesus, we share in the work of Jesus. And this work really is primarily twofold. First, what did Jesus say in the Gospels? He said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevaileth against it. And so, as those called into fellowship with Jesus, first we participate in the building up of the body of Christ. That's what he said he was going to do. He works through us to continue. This happens most clearly as we exercise our spiritual gifts within our faith communities. But the second part of this work is related to the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples. The truth is that we do not know who in our local or global communities and neighborhoods that will eventually come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We don't know who. We live in community, we live in neighborhoods with, with, with many who are non-believers who do not yet know Jesus, and we don't know who among them God intends to draw to himself through Jesus Christ. 
So we never know how Jesus might be using us as believers to draw someone into a right relationship with the Father. And so we exercise the common realities of our faith, not just in our faith community, but in our local neighborhoods and communities as well. Never knowing when it might be God's timing for someone to come to faith in Jesus. Work on both these fronts. Our faith community and our neighboring community is work that's motivated and guided by love as the Holy Spirit works in and through the children of God to produce his intended fruit. Friends, this is our shared and common fellowship. To be about building up the church and to be about sharing the gospel wherever God sends us. Could be here, could be far. And so here's what we see in these first nine verses as Paul opens his letter. By God's design, the people of God are set apart by God in Christ. Grace is given in Christ. Believers are enriched in him through the gifts that he has given This while we wait eagerly for Jesus' return, all while he sustains us and keeps us guiltless before the Father. Till the end, we endure as we have been called into fellowship together with Christ and one another. There are ten references to Jesus Christ in just these nine verses alone. As our team returns to Help us close our services today. We're reminded that when we are all together grateful for Jesus, our Lord, then we are also all together grateful for one another. Let's pray. Father, we do again thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's timely instruction to the church in Corinth for these Opening thoughts regarding our unity that we hold in common under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for what that unity produces in our body, that we have the shared gift of grace, the common enrichment of our spiritual gifts, that we have a common expectation, Lord, as we wait for Jesus' return. Father, we are hopeful. We share in fellowship together as this community. And we pray that you would work through us to help us edify and build one another up. And to motivate within us a desire to share the gospel. To tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. Of how he's changed our lives. Of how we can live with great peace and great hope and great thankfulness at all times because of the work that he's done for us. And Father, that we would be obedient to go to wherever you are sending us. If it's in our own communities, to our neighbors next door, that we would go. If it's to other countries. Where it's a little bit more difficult. Because there's persecution. And there's obstacles. Father, motivate within us the obedience to go, the boldness to proclaim. And the love 
motivate within us the love that this world needs to see. The same love that your son Jesus has demonstrated for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.